Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Down in Florida, Tyler. There's down a, in Florida. Down in Florida, one of our favorite coastal states. I was just there. Yeah, and you had a good trip, I understand. It, it was, it was. I, I, I particularly enjoyed sailing away from Florida, I have to say. It was beautiful, but uh, <laughs> Florida is one of my favorite places. Went on a cruise, um, but we're gonna we're gonna do a show that is located. The topic of this discussion is a Florida conversation. It's not a good news story. We're gonna be talking about the manatee uh, population and the manatee die-off and the crisis of water quality in Florida. Um, Tyler, you know, in coastal news today, we've been uh, posting f- quite a few stories about what's happening with the manatee population. Uh, this is an endangered animal. Uh, and uh, the condition of the population is under great stress. Um, and uh, that's going to be the focus of the conversation today. And it really weaves in several uh, themes that we have been exploring over the past few years, Peter, as we've been doing this podcast. Water quality in Florida, the challenges that the state faces to bring that back into a, a good place. It's it, The trends are not looking good. Uh, that That's one thing we've discussed. The other thing is this magnificent animal that is iconic to Florida. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of Flipper and, you know, the old TV shows and the Discovery Channel as a kid. I mean, these these sea cow, yeah. gentle giant animals that you can really, they're, they're quite accessible. You can really see them as they kind of mosey around uh, the canals and they're kind of charismatic, I guess, in, in the in the way that a slow moving <laughs> marine mammal can <laughs> lumbering. Be. They're cute. I, I love, uh, you know, there's something about the when you see the adult and the the, the little baby manatee, it just it, they're just incredibly compelling creatures. Very sadly, it seems that uh, manatees, which were considered, I remember growing up, they were considered to be on kind of stable footing. It seems as though that foundation is no, no longer as stable, that there are real threats here that this uh, creature is facing. And we're going to learn all about it today, Peter, with two awesome guests. We do have two experts, really, to talk to us today. And uh, we're, we're, we're talking to Tim Whitehouse, who's the executive director of an organization called Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Uh, Tim is joining us from Silver Spring, Maryland, their headquarters. And down in Tallahassee, Florida, Jerry Phillips is the director of the Florida chapter of PEER, is how we'll refer to it, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. Uh, PEER is a nonprofit organization. It was founded in 1996, and it is really an effective and important organization because what they do is ensure that public employees who are involved in resource management across agencies at the state and federal level have an avenue to bring the truth forward. Uh, so it's an it's a whistleblower protection organization. They're an activist organization, but they work within the regulatory structure, and they have a great history of success in really bringing forward and focusing the public's attention on key environmental issues. So uh, Timothy Whitehouse and Jerry Phillips are going to be the guests today, and I'm really looking forward to learning about this issue firsthand from a couple of experts who are up to their elbows in the manatee issue in Florida. Me too, Peter. I'm pumped up. I, I was kidding about the best parts is of Florida sailing away. And <laughs> I have to say, when, when we were sailing away, a few of the uh, cruise guests that were on the ship with me said that they actually saw some manatees, and they were delighted. 
Before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, I'd like to welcome Timothy Whitehouse and Jerry Phillips to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us to talk about this very, very significant issue on the American Shoreline, the fate of the manatee population in the state of Florida. Glad to have you guys on. Uh, Tim, if you would be so kind as the executive director of the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, PEER, uh, give us an introduction to uh, the organization and, and your role and your tenure there. Great. Uh, I've been at Pier for three years. Uh, prior to uh, coming to Pier, I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency in water enforcement issues, and then I've worked on international environmental issues for about a decade and came back to Pier. And I have to say, it's uh, one of the most amazing organizations. And the reason why is I think you stated our difference uh, from other groups in your introduction is we work primarily with current and former federal, state, or local employees who come to us with environmental issues. And they often provide us with the guidance, the inside information that we need to take an issue and to help magnify it and to help try and hold the feet of government to the fire so that they act on these complaints. And Tim, uh, just to quickly size up here, how big is it? How many chapters are there? And uh, are, are y'all active all over the country? To give us a, a perspective on how expansive Peer is. Sure. We have about 16 employees. Our headquarters, as you mentioned, is in Silver Spring, which is just across the border from Washington, D.C. Uh, we have five chapters throughout the United States, uh, one in Massachusetts, one in Florida, uh, one in um Tennessee, Colorado, and California. So we are active nationally, both with federal agencies. We're active at the state level, as well as local and municipal issues. Uh, Tim, you, you worked for the EPA in water quality enforcement. Uh, tell us a little bit about your tenure as a, uh, as a federal uh, employee in, in, in the, an environmental agency. Sure. I was there from uh, 1992 to 2002. It was a very different era in terms of environmental protection. When I worked in the Water Enforcement Division, um, I would say generally in the United States, uh, EPA was viewed as a positive force. It was viewed as a force that was trying to make waters swimmable and fishable and improve water quality. And it was a force that provided oversight over uh, state activities and state actions to make sure they complied with federal law. So in general, it was a time of opportunity. It was a time when people felt the environment was moving in the right direction. And unfortunately, um, I think the last 10, 15, 20 years were heading in the wrong direction. And that's why groups like Peer and other environmental advocacy groups are so important. 
Um, Jerry, you are the uh, director of one of the five uh, peer chapters, the Florida chapter. Uh, introduce us to your background and what you did as a state employee and uh, how long you've been with Pure. Right. Well, I, I'll echo what Tim said. I, I was, um, Tim was in, at the federal level. I was in the state level um, from about 92 to 96. I was an attorney at the state, Florida State Department of Environmental Protection, um, doing enforcement work for them, uh, actually, more specifically temporary injunctions where we would, when we found out about violations, we would go in and secure temporary injunctions to stop the pollution and move forward from there. Um, and my, I was doing this for the water program, wastewater program at DEP. I, I totally agree with Tim. Back then, it, it was a, the environment in general was pretty positive. Um, we, we looked at it as, as a growing uh, feel that there was going to be more uh, emphasis put on the environment. Um, Carol Browner, who who uh, you may know, uh, was our uh, secretary of the state DEP, um, and enforcement and compliance was highly you know pushed. Then, what happened was she left uh, to uh, become the EPA administrator yeah. under Bill Clinton, yeah. and there were changes at the top and when those changes took place it went south uh, no pun intended in a in a minute uh, and all of a sudden enforcement was a very dirty word in florida uh, a lot of the brain power left the state um, or, or left the agency and um and, and also, we had a we had a working relationship with EPA at that time. Actually, employees would change from state to federal and back and forth uh, in Florida between Florida and Atlanta, uh, the regional office for EPA. That pretty much stopped. Uh, and then all of a sudden, EPA just started taking a very hands-off approach. Uh, and and now since I left there, um, I've been with Pearson's. 2003, and one of the things I do is track enforcement um, using the DEP's own data, which I, I know exists, and I've been able to get that through public records laws, and we put those reports out and give the public an idea of what's happening on an annual basis with statewide enforcement at, at DEP. Let's, uh, let's dive in a little bit to the state of affairs in Florida. You know, I mentioned in the top of the show that that Peter and I have been talking about and kind of covering water quality broadly in Florida. We've talked about uh, the discharge of Lake Okeechobee. We've talked about the Everglades. We've talked about uh, basically how the Army Corps of Engineers have, has re-plumbed the state from its original uh, configuration, which, ladies and gentlemen, mm -hmm. I have to say is pretty uh, it's the, the idea of florida it's i guess it's only a concept now right peter because we've so heavily changed it. it's true with a lot of places on the american shoreline not 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 natural much in, in terms of its water uh, system yeah and and now we're living in and i think the best way to to uh, understand this is flying overhead when you're flying over florida not only can you see the actual 
modification major you know army corps of engineers projects but the entire shoreline virtually has been developed there are canal like marina developments kind of everywhere it's easy to imagine just how different this is from the natural state of things and i want to direct this next question to jerry but could you kind of summarize broadly what the current state of affairs vis-a-vis -vis water quality is in florida a lot of talk uh, a lot of window dressing uh, we see crises occur like the algal bloom that occurred a few years ago um, there's there will be a, a lot of public uproar about it. Politicians will react, say all everything that they're expected to say, and then when that dies down, it's back to business as usual. Um, uh, one of the programs that deals with this is um, the dredge and fill program at DEP, uh, and they are responsible for issuing permits to developers uh, and. Development has just escalated out of out of control, quite frankly. Uh, so permits are being just handed out like like you would get a coke at a, at a, at a vending machine, and and that shows no signs of abating. Uh, meanwhile, the legislature is uh, constantly talks about wanting to improve things, but just like in the legislative session that just ended. You see no real progress, uh, that, and and the reason is quite frankly that that the the politicians are heavily funded by, well, the, the main one is Big Sugar um, in Florida, uh, and and they're not going to impose regulations that offend their their constituents, which in this case happens to be developers and the sugar industry. That's and that's increasing. It's not. It's not getting any better. Uh, but that's that's what we're dealing with. We we have an explosion of population, uh, and at the same time, an effort to brand Florida as an environmentally friendly state. That you know, come to Florida, see the manatees, and so forth. And it's been that way for years. Right. And I just want to jump in here because one of the things that I think is fascinating about Florida and Peter, again, we've been following this. It, it's that it seems to be ratcheting up uh, because so much of when so much of Florida's identity is the water and shoreline and the the coastal vibes, not just its identity, but its economy. I mean, every advertisement that I see to visit Florida is a beach. It's a cruise ship. It's a shot of the coral in the Florida Keys. Uh, it's an alligator in the Everglades. It's it's this representation of of a of a natural space. Are the politics going to shift? I mean, at some point, the regular old voters of Florida are going are being affected by this, be it because they can't stay in their in their beach houses or their beach tourism businesses are 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 suffering. I mean. Uh, I know that I don't know if there's an economic impact of, of the manatee in Florida, but I, I bet a lot of people come sure. and want to see them. The I don't I don't want to be uh, all doom and gloom, um, but uh, frankly, we're I, I know a lot of folks in the environmental community. I know people that work at the DEP um, whose position is that nothing will change in this state 
unless and until there are a series of major environmental crises, uh, because otherwise people don't get it. Uh, the, the manatee uh, is uh, a symbol of Florida. It's a state mammal. It is, that said, uh, it is also the result, it, it brings people in. It represents money for Floridians. And I remember a time when you could go to Home Assassin Springs on the West Coast, just north of Tampa. A lot of manatees winter there. And you could go down there and literally see state employees in the water feeding manatees. Okay, and these are endangered species. It's a violation of law to do this. But they were giving shows to the public to see how cute these animals are and, and, and you know, feed them and so forth. Total violation of law. But this was being fostered by the state. So it's all a matter of bringing money into the state. Uh, and, and, and I don't see that changing. I, I, I really don't un, until uh, there's a change at the top. Uh, there has to be a change of will at the legislature and in the governor's office to to bring back some environmental sanity to the state. Mm. Uh, Tim, I want to I want let, to let's turn our attention and get our listeners a little uh, data information about manatees in our research for the show. It seems the population of manatees in Florida is somewhere in the mid 5,000s, maybe in into the 6,000s right now. And uh, the animals are are dying at a fairly high rate. In 2022, the statistics from the state of Florida show that between January 1st of this year and March 11th, which is just a few days ago, 420 of these animals have perished uh, in about three months. Compared to the year 2021, there were 456 recorded manatee deaths in 2021. So in the first three, I guess, two, two and a half months of this year, we've almost matched the 2021 death rate. Um, talk to us about why this issue of all of the environmental issues in America that Pierre could focus on, why is the manatee issue central to Pierre's work? And what is it about this issue you think you can uh, help move forward or improve? Sure. And uh, could I make one correction? Please do. Yes. So last year, uh, 1,101 manatees uh, were killed. That was their mortality rate. So the 456 that you mentioned was through um, was a comparable to this year. So it was from January 1st to uh, March oh, 11th. Thank you. So this I appreciate year there that. were slightly fewer deaths than last year uh, at the same time period. Great. And thank you very much. That's a significant uh, yeah, correction in the record. Thank Solid you very clarification. Much. Um, what is what, Tim, why is this issue? So why is this an issue that peer focuses on? I say as the national director, you guys can focus your attention and the spotlight that you have on any number of environmental issues. Why manatees? Yeah, so I think in Florida, there's a lot of attention, as you all have mentioned, on the manatees. And 
um, we want to amplify what other groups are finding, what other groups are doing, and continue to shine the spotlight on the state's failure to provide basic water quality protections. And we want to do it in Florida, but also nationally to kind of burst the bubble that Florida has crystal waterways. And what's really happening is these crystal waterways are turning red and brown. And there's an environmental collapse that's happening in Florida. And the manatees is just a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Um, and because it's iconic and because it's associated with Florida and because it attracts attention when there are die-offs, uh, people start to pay attention. And so nationally, we want to shine the spotlight on this issue to help bring a broader discussion into the environmental collapse that's happening in Florida. I see. And and uh, obviously the connection that we're all making here, that you're making, is that the manatee, the, the fate of this uh, species is tied to this the quality of the water in the near shore and the words we haven't said yet are the harmful algal blooms, the red and the brown water. Uh, tell us about what is driving the water quality problem in Florida. If you can speak broadly to that, Tim, um, what is, what is producing this environmental collapse? Yeah, I think Florida is attempting to, change its natural landscape. Um, it has a population boom. Uh, there are sewer discharges. There are biosolids that are contaminated that are being spread on agricultural lands, fertilizer. There's coastal erosion. There's runaway herbicide spraying in Florida. Um, there's pesticide runoff. There's increased development. There's poor infrastructure. Uh, there's cancer-causing and immune-suppressing chemicals that are leaching into waterways. So you name it, Florida has it. If we were to, and maybe you do this at Pier, but uh, com could we compare Florida uh, to maybe another state? Uh, I don't know, maybe California. You have a California chapter. Uh, what are some of the the differences in response to this unfolding water quality crisis in Florida as compared to some other jurisdictions that uh, are maybe doing better or maybe not? Well, one thing is there's a strong cultural and political uh, difference. So in the United States, as you know, there's a huge divide between how people view the federal government. And for, um, in my view, for environmental protections to happen, you need collaboration and you need federal oversight and you need um, localities, the state government and the federal government to work together to solve problems. For a number of years, Florida has been largely a no-go zone for the federal government. They have stayed out of the picture and have not um, ensured that there's minimum federal standards being met. Very little federal activity in Florida. In other states that are more uh, advanced on the environment in terms of viewing it as an important part of their state identity, um, as well as their state economy, um, there's been more of a collaborative atmosphere. So Florida's gone its own way, like many other states. And as a consequence, um, 
a lot of those with access to the state legislature with money have driven the dynamics of the environment in Florida. And that means uh, development. It means unfettered growth. It means um, the lack of controls over environmental and water quality. You, know, you mentioned the manatee as a canary in the coal mine. A comparison, I think, is quite appropriate. Uh, the manifestation of the failure to adequately address water quality in Florida is revealed in the fate of this particular population. The explosion of harmful algal blooms changes the water chemistry, changes the water clarity. Uh, these are animals that rely on seagrasses to feed and uh, when the water's in bad condition, the seagrasses are, uh, don't grow and aren't available. What I'm reading is that a lot of the manatees, there's a variety of causes that, uh, of death for these critters, but one of them is that they're starving. And recently, the state of Florida has started a program to put lettuce in the water to create little feeding stations and try to keep these animals alive. Can you talk about... Can you talk about that particular response strategy uh, and about uh, the connection really to harmful algal blooms and seagrasses? Uh, yes, very briefly. Um, I actually am preparing for the show, love to, to watch a few YouTube videos to see you know what was going on as opposed to reading papers. And when you actually look at some of the videos online, particularly at certain lagoons where the manatees congregate, and you look at pictures of what the uh, floor of those lagoons looked like 10 or 20 years ago, where they're rich and lush and full of seagrass. And now there's nothing. It is an underwater desert. It is brown, mucky, and murky. And the uh, manatees have nothing to eat. And consequently, they're starving. You also see videos of manatees crawling into the grass out of the water to eat grass, which is not healthy for the manatees. So there's a huge die-off of manatees from starvation, which is relatively new and very troubling because there's very little food for them to eat. And so the state did start a program to feed them lettuce in certain areas. Um, it was, I think, necessary. I, I think they're winding down that program now. Um, but it does create problems when you feed wild animals and if they start to associate humans with food, they will approach humans and that will become very dangerous for manatees because boat strikes are a major cause of death for manatees also. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but clearly uh, feeding manatees lettuce is not a long-term solution to the problem. I know there's efforts to rebed some of these areas with seagrass, but until the water pollution problems are solved, the seagrass will continue to die. You know, Peter, I remember when I was uh, a, a young man growing up, uh, I would uh, occasionally watch a wildlife program. And the big threat to manatees was boat strikes. Yeah, uh, that was what we were told. That's the big threat. And it's just shocking to hear that uh, the mortality has spiked up here. Uh, Jerry, in your tenure uh, with Florida DEP, uh, was was any of this going on in the agency? Were, were there issues with seagrass die-offs? Uh, was this a problem back then, or has this kind of emerged more recently? It wasn't really uh, seen as a, as a significant problem back in the 90s. Um, and, and, and the reason for that was that there were 
there was a lot more oversight, um, daily oversight that was conducted by the agency of particularly wastewater uh, facilities that would discharge into surface waters. And that's what causes a lot of this is you have you have surface water discharges that are full of nutrients um, and they they feed the algae and that causes the die-off because the sun cannot permeate through that algae and it kills the vegetation on the on the water beds um, and the DEP was was pretty aggressive about uh, ensuring that these facilities did not discharge into these surface waters and levels that exceeded their permits. That is what that's what has changed uh, significantly, and that that has happened actually after EPA gave the DEP delegation to administer the Clean Water Act. So now the DEP is in charge of this, and the DEP just basically looks the other way. That's been that's been a very very real problem uh, over the last. Um, 25 years or so, it has just gotten increasingly uh, poor to the to the to the extent that now the facilities are pretty well sure that that even if they violate, they're not going to be penalized significantly. And so, so that that just does not bode well for uh, for the future unless that that is turned around. The other thing about this is infrastructure. Um, very poor infrastructure. It's an aging infrastructure with with wastewater facilities, uh, to the point that that these facilities now routinely, when you get there, are some facilities where you get a just a routine Florida thunderstorm. You know, we get, and it's not uncommon for us to get one to two inches of rain inside of a couple of hours from these storms. The problem is these wastewater facilities are not designed necessarily to even withstand that kind of rainfall. So what do they do? They they overflow and the result is that you have raw sewage going into the surface waters, again, feeding the algae and so forth. It's a vicious cycle. But, but just last year, um, Brevard County, which is the, the Space Coast, discharged over 200,000 gallons into the surface waters. Broward County, over 100 million gallons. On the West Coast, Hillsborough County, uh, 3.7 million gallons. Are you saying of untreated sewage? Of untreated raw sewage. Yeah. When we're talking about the water quality problem, Tim, you mentioned three broad areas of sources. I mean, the agriculture practices in Florida and the use of fertilizers and chemicals uh, for sugar and citrus and other crops uh, contributes to the degradation of water quality. Uh, it's a very... The, Florida is a very uh, fluid state. There's a lot of water. Uh, there's a lot of groundwater, and uh, these fertilizers reach and waterways, and uh, these fertilizers and agricultural runoff reaches uh, important uh, water systems that the manatees rely on, and in particular the Indian River Lagoon in Brevard County, as you said, uh, Jerry, located along the Space Coast, the home of Cape Canaveral, uh, just to the uh, just to the east of of Orlando. Uh, but agriculture practices are key. Uh, the development uh, practices and uh, is also a significant issue. Uh, the use of 
fertilizers in yards and and uh, in neighborhoods and in communities uh, runs off and contributes to uh, degradation of water quality and ha- harmful algal blooms. And then we've got this septic system problem, uh, these infrastructure problems you're mentioning. The water treatment facilities in the state are, are really in poor condition. I mean, Tim, I got to say, it doesn't sound good. Uh, it sounds like the state is in serious trouble here. Um, do you believe that the manatees are at risk of extinction in the next 10 to 20 years? I really don't know. Uh, you know, the, the manatees population rebounded. Um, it used to be an endangered species. I think in the 70s, there may have only been about a thousand manatees counted. Um, and uh, so they rebounded. And now the last few years, we're seeing a sudden die off. Um, and what's very troubling, again, is the lack of food sources. And so um, they will be imperiled rather quickly unless the water quality problems are solved um, in a quick manner. Uh, so I, it's difficult to make predictions, but without food sources, it's hard to see that the manatees will have a future in Florida. Can you give us an update on where, what your statistics show in terms of what we think the population of manatees uh, is? I know this is generally divided into the east coast of Florida and the gulf coast of Florida, but the overall population. And if you would uh, reiterate the, the, the deaths that have been documented, say, in the last two or three years, if you can. Yes, so there, uh, Florida does different population counts, um, and the most recent statistics on their webpage uh, put it at about 7,520. Depending on the source, you will see numbers below that or slightly above that. So it's somewhere, you know, let's say in the six to 8,000 range is probably a reasonable uh, estimate. Um, So if you go back to like uh, 2016, there were about 625 uh, mortality events in Florida for manatees, and about 113 of those were watercraft. Um, and cold stress, you know, was about 50. And, um, you know, there were many undetermined causes, about 99. Um, if you jump forward to 2021, there were 1,101 deaths, and that is almost double the amount in 2016. Um, If you go to this year, what you'll see is this year there have been about 420 deaths through March 11th. Um, And last year at about this time, there were 456 deaths. I see. And that is like double or triple the rate from previous years. Um, so the die-off is increasing and the causes are thought to be largely related to the lack of food. So if we've got somewhere around 6,000, 7,000, maybe somewhere close to 8,000 of these critters out there and we're losing a thousand of them in 2021 and are on pace to lose another thousand in 2022, uh, that's a that's 2,000 uh, uh, manatee uh, deaths in in two years, which is about what on eight thousand. We're talking about twenty five percent of the population. Uh, 
being documented as as in this die-off. Now, obviously, there's births and there's other more complex population information out there, but this sounds sounds very serious. Uh, it's Tim in 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 your experience in working and Jerry in your experience in working with uh, peer at the federal level and at the state level. Um, how motivated are the uh, the public employees out there to try to bring greater attention to this? What are you seeing in in the DEP staff, uh, the Fish and Wild? I think it's the Fish and Wildlife Conservation uh, Department in Florida. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of political or or I don't want to say political. I want to say in terms of environmental activism within the state and federal agencies uh, on this issue? Yeah, I'll talk federal and then toss it over to Jerry to talk the state level. I want to say the federal employees that work on these issues are completely devoted to the uh, cause and recognize both the manatees for the sentient beings they are. You know, they are creatures in and of themselves that deserve to live and for the uh, significance of what is happening to them in terms of environmental collapse. So the federal employees that work on these issues are completely devoted to saving the manatees and addressing the underlying problems. The problem is they don't have the support. Um, you know, there's not enough money, there's not enough resources, and there's not the political will to make the changes necessary to save these creatures and to improve water quality in Florida. Jerry? I'll, I'll echo that uh, with the DEP. I, I believe what I, what I see is a lot of employees who are very concerned about these issues. Um, their heart is in the right place, but they don't have the support from senior management to make the, to make the decisions that they need to make to hold the polluters accountable. That's a very real problem. Um, and and in, in addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the brain power, so to speak, left the state in the late 90s. And what, what replaced that was a hiring program that brought people in with not a lot of environmental experience. And they trained them the way they wanted them trained. And so now, the polluters are viewed as customers by a lot of these employees. And, and consequently, the employees are not motivated. There's a real problem with going against your own customer. Uh, that's a very real issue here in Florida. Uh, and, and it just has not changed uh, significantly uh, over the last 20 years. That said, there are still a lot of very good, talented people that work on the issue, um, but they're concerned about sticking their necks out and, you know, advocating for enforcement and so forth, um, and then finding themselves out of work. They don't have very much in the way of job protections if they go against the, the uh, wishes of senior management. You know, you mentioned earlier in the show, Jerry, that uh, this past legislative session in Florida in Tallahassee, that uh, it was kind of an unfortunate uh, result that that nothing was done. But um, what can you tell me? Do we need to pass some legislation here? Do, what what needs to be done? What what do the leaders of the state of Florida 
actually need to do if you were president of the universe king of the universe for 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 right i'll give it to you for one hour and you could snap your fingers and solve this problem can you lay out a few things that that would really make a difference that that the florida legislature and the governor and and the other leaders in the dep and elsewhere in the state could do and really make an impact here for a whole hour huh um, a full hour. <laughs> um, I'll start with the governor. Uh, take the take the collar off of your DEP secretary, and instruct the agency to enforce their permits that they've already issued um, across the board. Uh, take a no tolerance attitude towards it, these violations, uh, and then when you do enforcement. You also enforce the, the settlement agreements that you issue because they don't right now. Uh, that's number one. And I, I frankly think that that would go a long way to, to resolving a significant part of this problem. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a person that, that, that feels that a lot of new laws are necessary in, in terms of wastewater and, and those issues with dealing with surface waters. And the reason is we already, if you go into the Florida administrative code, there are plenty of statutes that address these issues. Um, the agency simply needs to enforce what they already have on the books. It's been that way for decades. And anybody that works in the environmental field knows that. Uh, the other thing that is, absolutely necessary is to get a handle on agricultural and uh, uh, pasture runoff. Uh, that is something that right now in Florida, uh, farms are allowed to discharge uh, under the uh, governance, if you will, of a best management practice. We call them BMPs. The problem with the BMPs that, are, that we currently have on the books is they're unenforceable. Um, a, a good attorney uh, can, can run rings around these BMPs and prevent the agencies from doing a whole lot with them. Um, in addition to that, though, even, even at that level, we now know from our current agriculture secretary that when, when she took over a few years ago, she found over 6,000 uh, cases of BMPs that were not being adhered to. Uh, she sent those cases over to the DEP and said, we need these enforced. So far, the, B, the DEP has enforced one of them out of 6,000. So you need to stop the runoff. You've got, to, you've got to put enforceable conditions on these farms and on these pasture uh, cattle and on the cattle industry to stop this runoff going into these waterways. That does need legislation. That needs legislation with teeth in it. It needs increased penalties, uh, allowable penalties, uh, and then those need to be enforced. Uh, we also need clear regulations on things such as PFAS uh, contamination. We know that there's PFAS leaching into the surface waters. Uh, that needs we need clear uh, Jerry, tell, Jerry, I, my apologies, but as a listener, yeah. t would you please tell us what PFAS is? Uh, I'm and I'll jump, a, I'll I'm jump in because we're doing this nationally. Um, sure. 
Sure. And and Jerry Jerry's been working on it in Florida, but um, you know PFAS are per and polyfluorinated compounds. There are about twelve thousand of them. Uh, they uh, were made famous by the movie Dark Waters. If you haven't seen it, please do. But they're known. They were first came to the public's knowledge as Teflon, so they're anti-stick properties. But they're in everything now, and uh, they're in firefighting foam. Um, states are starting to regulate them. The federal government is making small steps to regulate them, but Florida is making no movement on this um, area. And we do know uh, through the work of groups in Florida, such as Fight for Zero, which is works on the Indian River Lagoon, mm -hmm. that these toxic chemicals are showing up in high levels in manatees, in the food they eat, and in wildlife. And um, a lot of that's probably coming from the Space Center, where they use firefighting foam, where they have in the past. Uh, that has high levels of PFAS. We had the good fortune of having on the show Dr. James Sullivan, who is a governor-appointed member of the, I think, the Blue-Green Algae Task Force. Uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Sullivan is called the Dr. Doom of the Algal Bloom. Uh, and he said that very thing to Tyler and I on the show. He said the amount of nutrients uh, that are built into the system over the decades that Florida has been doing what it's doing are going to take maybe up to 50 years before the water quality was going to be significantly improved. It was a rather a, a gloomy assessment. And uh, Tim, this is what I'm, uh, you know, it's often said uh, where there's a will, there is a way. Uh, but the counter to that, of course, is where there is no will, there is no way. And it seems to me that Florida is not interested in effectively responding to this problem. They are interested in politically responding to the problem and putting forth what I consider to be insubstantial window dressing. Uh, DeSantis is good on the press conference. He gets up and talks about these issues. But to really change the dynamics of the issue is going to mean taking on the developers, taking on the uh, public investment in infrastructure, and it's going to mean taking on the ag industry, as as Jerry so el eloquently put it. I mean, are you are you pessimistic here, Tim? Do you is is James Sullivan, the Doctor Doom of the algorithm, correct that this problem is simply locked in, or is there effective things that can be done now? Unfortunately, the problem is locked in. Uh, I try not to be doom and gloom because once you embrace all doom and gloom, then um, the pathways to success are closed. Um, so I believe uh, that's what's needed is political change, political organization, and that's not a Republican or Democratic thing. That is a grassroots effort to mobilize people who care about conservation, who care about the future of Florida, who care about the public's health as well as the health of the animals and species around them. I think that's the hope that we have is that because this has received so much attention and because there are a lot of really good grassroots organizations organizing around the manatees, that that's the hope for the future, that these local grassroots organizations can start chipping away at what needs to be done at the local level, and that can move to the state level. So that's my hope. 
That is a good thing to bank on. I think people do care about this and and being motivated to act is absolutely essential. Tyler? Well, I mean, I've just got to ask, Tim, I mean, do we do the feds have some stick here? You know, I my understanding is that Florida is a recipient of uh, federal funding for uh, all sorts, all manner of projects. But Peter, what immediately comes to mind are like federal shore protection projects and things like that. And yeah, they have they've leverage. They've, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm wondering Wonder. if there's a way to bring uh, Florida to the table in maybe a more serious way. Uh, with the federal government saying, hey, listen, uh, we'd love to partner with you. We love that you have this wonderful coast. But hey, listen, you're not upholding your end of the bargain here. Uh, Is that something that has been explored? So the federal government has a, a lot of huge sticks that they could use if they chose to. And money is one of them. Um. Unfortunately, the last 20 years, uh, the federal government has largely stepped out of that business of providing oversight. And um, states like to complain about um, all the taxes they're paying, but they get a lot of it back and uh, they get a lot of it back without any strings attached or very few strings. So the federal government could do a lot in terms of its grants and its money it gives back to Florida. Um, One thing that uh, I think we'll be facing if these trends continue in another year or two is um, whether the Florida manatees becomes an endangered species. It's now a a listed protected species, but if it becomes an endangered species, then there'll be the need for much stronger protections um, if the Endangered Species Act is properly applied. And uh, the Endangered Species Act prohibits the taking of um, these animals and would be a huge step in um, building in some stronger protections for the manatees. That's an outstanding overview, uh, Tim. I, I wanted to ask, and as we wrap up this conversation on the challenges in, of water quality in Florida and the and, and the fate of the manatee, uh, what Peer does, and I think uh, having worked as a state agency regulator in Texas and a, uh, uh, overseeing a permitting program, uh, the people, the professionals that I've worked with in government uh, are dedicated to the cause. Uh, these are people who uh, get into the agencies, they quietly go about their work, they're, they're professional, they're focused on the facts, they're doing the best they can with the authorities they've been given. By and large, uh, state and federal agency employees are not looking for the limelight. They want to do their job and fulfill the responsibilities they've been given by their legislatures and their and their uh, their bosses. Um, what Peer does is is supports employees who really poke their head up and say, you know what, something's really wrong here. And anytime a a agency employee. Uh, takes a public position that's critical of the agencies or the practices that they're involved in executing, uh, they're taking a big risk. Uh, Tim, I just wondered if you would, uh, what is it that motivates uh, or accounts for the people who do choose to come forward publicly to to take on issues like water quality in Florida? Uh, talk about that, if you would, as an organizational executive director. 
Sure. I think the people that come forward to peer with issues, either publicly or privately, you know, are motivated by a strong sense of, you know, what is right. Um, they're motivated by a strong sense of the need to make change and by frustration uh, about the inability to do that in their current position. That's one motivation. The second is um, people come to us when government um, outright lies. That's often, I think most federal, most federal and state employees are willing to work in a dynamic where there's some politics infused into it. But when politics takes over and the communications and the lies become public discourse, um, then we have a strong uptake in employees that come to us with issues or disclosures. Well, it's, it's an important uh, organization because it gives, uh, it creates an avenue for a greater scrutiny, for greater public discussion on complex issues. And so I've, I've, I've always had a great deal of respect for the uh, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. It's a great organization. I'm trying to remember, Peter, is it the third estate is the press? Or is that the fourth estate? <laughs> it's one of the estates. It's fourth, I think. It's the fourth. Well, whatever it is, it, it fits to me in kind of that, uh, you know, collection of estates, apparently, that, that make up a good, healthy government. Yeah. Well, Jerry, uh, closing thoughts from you uh, as, a, as the peer chapter president down there, executive director down there in Florida. Tell us what your thoughts are going forward in light of this issue. Going forward, we simply need more oversight. We need more. We need that third rail, that third estate, to shine a light on this process. <clears throat> and then we need the governmental agencies to step up and start enforcing these permits. Start drawing back on the pollution that's it, that's being emitted on a daily basis down here. And I, you know, I, I do believe most of the public wants these situations to be resolved uh, in, a, in a manner that benefits everyone, including the animals. Um, we just need the public, the, the political will to do it. And, and we need the word to go out. And if when that happens, it, it, we can see positive change down here. Uh, and eventually, I think it will. It, it's just going to take time. Well, I like to say that reality is a persistent teacher. Uh, when the people in Florida get tired of the uh, conditions of the water that they want to enjoy, when they see these animals and other uh, creatures in distress and dying and the condition of the environment degrading, uh, maybe there'll be enough motivation to act. That's sort of the crisis theory of government that... Uh, Things have to get bad enough to get motivated. Uh, Tim, have we ever, how close are we to the point where that will, that political desire to make meaningful change, uh, how close are we to that point, do you think, in Florida on water quality? Well, so every political prediction I've made in the last 30 years has been wrong. <laughs> Mine <So>. too. <laughs> uh, well, not every. I've been close sometimes. Uh, but I, I, I do have to say I am heartened to see the organizing that's happening at the local level. And if that organizing can continue and build strength and these local groups can continue to work together and build a movement, then I'm hopeful. 
Um, so the seeds are planted, the foundation is there, um, and here at Peer, we'll do everything to help, um, you know, foster that uh, that collaboration and that change. It's the kind of it's the kind of work we all need and depend on. I thank you guys for the work that you do at Peer, uh, and for the service that you've done as uh, in in the agencies at the federal and state level. This is the I, I have a lot of respect. People talk about bureaucrats and talk down to bureaucrats all the time, and I'll tell you, having worked in and around. Uh, coastal uh, government uh, employees and and professionals. I've constantly impressed at the quality of the people and the dedication of the staff. It's absolutely uh, an unfair criticism. Consummate uh, professionals. They, there's just so many good people, uh, and I think it's great to have these organizations like Peer supporting those folks. So. Uh, really appreciate your time, ladies and gentlemen. It is Timothy Whitehouse. He is the executive director of the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, joining us from the national headquarters of that organization in Silver Springs, Maryland. And Jerry Phillips, the director of the Florida Chapter of Peer, joining us from Tallahassee. Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for the work that you're doing, and thank you for t- sharing your uh, perspective with our audience on the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you so much.